Yale's White House. Yale had a brand new president, A. Whitney Griswold, and he had not yet acquired the savoir-faire of high office. When the controversy raged, Dwight MacDonald would comment that Yale's authorities reacted with all the grace and agility of an elephant cornered by a mouse, but more on that later. I remember while doing the research, making an appointment with a professor of economics who privately deplored the hot collectivist turn taken by the economics faculty after the war. At Yale, at least this was so when I was there, the relation between faculty and students, properly speaking I was no longer a student having graduated in the spring, is wonderfully genial, though, again, this is how it was, there was no confusing who was the professor, who the student. I told him I was there to collect information about the left turn taken in the instruction of economics, and he reacted as a Soviet bureaucrat might have when questioned by a young KGB investigator on the putative heterodoxy of Joseph Stalin. He told me, maintaining civility by his fingernails, that he would simply not discuss the subject with me in any way. It was not so, however, in the research dealing with the treatment of religion at Yale, perhaps because I ambushed my Protestant friends. I asked the then president of Dwight Hall, the Protestant student organization, if he would bring together the chaplain and the half-dozen persons, staff and undergraduate, centrally concerned with religion to hear one afternoon my chapter on religion at Yale. Everyone came. I read them the chapter that appears in this book, save only the paragraph concerning Yale's chaplain, the Reverend Sidney Lovett. I did not want to express even the tenderest criticism of him in his presence. Three or four suggestions of a minor kind were made by members of the audience, and these corrections I entered. I wish I had recorded the episode in the book because a great deal was made of the alleged singularity of my criticisms and of the distinctiveness of my position as a Roman Catholic. All that would have been difficult for the critics to say if they had known that the chapter had been read out verbatim to the half-dozen Protestant officials most intimately informed about the religious life of Yale, all of whom had acknowledged the validity of my findings while dissociating themselves from my prescriptions. I sent the completed manuscript to Henry Regnery in Chicago in April, and he instantly accepted it for publication. I had waited until then formally to apprise the President, Mr. Griswold, of the forthcoming event— we had crossed paths, never soared, several times while I was undergraduate chairman of the Yale Daily News. The conversation on the telephone was reserved, but not heated. He thanked me for the civility of a formal notification, told me he knew that I was at work on such a book that he respected my right to make my views known. I was grateful that he did not ask to see a copy of the manuscript, as I knew there would be eternal wrangling on this point or the other. But a week or so later, I had a telephone call from an elderly tycoon with a huge opinion of himself. Williams Rogers Coe is mentioned in the book. He advised me that he knew about the manuscript, and he had splendid tidings for me. Namely, I could safely withdraw the book because he, Mr. Coe, had got the private assurance of President Griswold that great reforms at Yale were underway and that conservative principles were in the ascendancy. So why bother to publish a book that would merely stir things up? I gasped at the blend of naivete and effrontery. But although I had observed the phenomenon, I was not yet as conversant as I would quickly become with the ease with which rich and vain men are manipulated by skillful educators. As a matter of fact, men who are not particularly rich or vain are pretty easy to manipulate also. I did attempt to make one point in a correspondence with Mr. Coe that especially bears repeating. It is this, that a very recent graduate is not only supremely qualified, but uniquely qualified to write about the ideological impact of an education he has experienced. I was asked recently whether I would update this book, to which the answer was very easy. This book cannot be updated, at least not by me. I could only undertake this if I were suddenly thirty years younger, 
slipped past the admissions committee of Yale University in a red wig, enrolled in the courses that serve as ideological pressure points, if I listened to the conversation of students and faculty, participated in the debates, read the college paper every day, read the textbooks, heard the classroom inflections, compared notes with other students in other courses. For years and years after this book came out, I would receive letters from Yale alumni asking for an authoritative account of how the situation at Yale is now. After about three or four years, I wrote that I was incompetent to give such an account. I am as incompetent to judge Yale education today as most of the critics who reviewed this book were incompetent to correct me when I judged it 25 years ago. Only the man who makes the voyage can speak truly about it. I knew that most of my own classmates would disagree with me on any number of matters, most especially on my prescriptions. But at another level, I'd have been surprised to find disagreement. Dwight MacDonald was among the few who spotted the point, though I don't think in his piece for the reporter on the controversy he gave it quite the emphasis it deserved.